0: Hey everyone, it's Allegra. We are super excited about this episode because Misty gets to talk about history, I get to talk about literature, and we both get to talk about a book that we love that means a lot to us. But because we are talking about Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, I did want to let you know that some of the things we mention are pretty sensitive in nature, including sexual assault, physical assault. So that being said, I can't wait to share this with you and hear what you think of our episode. Thanks. Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed with the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and I just moved, so I am brain dead. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> <laughs> moving is to to the talk about. Do you want to hear about my multiple trips to Lowe's, or no? Yeah, no idea. Apparently, when you buy a house, then you just spend all your money at Lowe's. Yes, that's true. I'm Misty. I moved about a year ago, and I'm never doing it again. It's real bad. It's awful. And I'm not really even doing any of the work. My husband's doing most of it, so I'm just here to complain. Well, we all figured that. Yeah. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Yay! I know you've been wanting to... I I feel like this was your very first suggestion when we started the podcast. I think it was. You're like, we should do an episode on The Handmaid's Tale. And I was like, we'll get to it. So I feel like 31st, 32nd episode. I've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> so I love this book. So why? Tell me Tell me about how you met the book. So I was a freshman in college, and I had to take a lit class or an English class or something. I don't think you took lit in your freshman year, but continue. And I read this book. Yeah. And I loved it. You read it for a college class? I read it for a college class. Mm-hmm edgy yeah it was (laughs) it just it blew my mind yeah I said then many 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 years later yeah I'm in a book club you know that Mm -hmm. and I suggested we read this to my book club yeah and we read it yeah and then I got banned from picking books for about six months (laughs) I wasn't allowed to have another vote so let me ask you this before we judge your book club, are do you guys typically read like light read, beach yes. read type books? Yes, I would so say more than more than not. So you're more reading like, or like the the literary potato society, whatever that book was. We read that one. So yeah, you're reading some guaranteed happy ending. Yes. Okay, so then you have just picked this because you're because I love it, and that's what you do.
1: Yeah, then You just I, come
0: in there like a hammer. That I was not allowed to pick anymore. I would ban you for life. I mean, I love this <laughs> book too, but if that's not what we're here for. So how did you meet the book? So I resisted it for a long time. People knowing, obviously, I'm an English major. I like books. I like books by women. I'm a feminist, all these things. People always recommend this book to me. I never wanted to read it. Because it was too highly recommended. No, because I thought because of the title that it would be like set in like medieval or Renaissance England. Because I thought it was about a handmaid. Well, and the covers probably don't help that either. No, they do not. Yeah. So then I was like, I don't want to read this old timey tale. And uh, (laughs) like the Canterbury Tales. (laughs) Yeah, basically. So uh, I resisted it. I resisted it for a really long time. And then I think, you know, I had like four copies that people had just given me because they're like, you have to read it. And uh, I finally like maybe read the back of it. And I was like, oh, this is not the thing that I thought that it was. So, yeah, I will read it. And I think I read it in one day. This is one of my favorite fiction novels. It's like this and the bell jar. Because I like happy things. There are so many good books out there. And, and actually, in our next episode, we're going to talk about women and books. But yeah, it's a good book. And I'm glad that I read it. And now it's just kind of scary. Yes. <laughs> so do we want to talk about like the origin of the book? So, Before we jump into what it's about? So yeah. So I want to talk about how the book was written. Because I have studied a lot of Margaret Atwood books. And um, so I did some reading about how she wrote this book. Because Margaret Atwood is great at knowing that she's a very good and important writer. And not in an arrogant way, but she just knows it. And she's also very good at wanting to share her gifts and abilities and coach and mentor and teach. So the book was originally just called Offred, which is the name of the main character, if you don't remember. And she changed it to The Handmaid's Tale about 150 pages into writing it. Do you want to know how she wrote it? Like physically how she wrote it? Yes. Yeah, so this is the 80s. She hand wrote it. She hand wrote it with yes. a pen. Then she transcribed it, sort of, with a the typewriter. Then she wrote all over the typewritten pages, like scribbling on the type pages. And then she gave all of those to someone who is a professional typist. Oh, I didn't know that part. She paid someone to type it. And then that is how she got her manuscript. Because, of course... This was 1985. We didn't have the same kind of computing technology that we do now. So I think it's important that it's published in 1985. Yeah. And it w- she was working at, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Well, and also in England. She started when she was in England and finished it in Tuscaloosa. Yes. But she was uh, teaching Yes. in an MFA program in Alabama. That's where Alabama is. Yes. University of Alabama. Yes. Roll Tide. Uh, and that's where she finished the book. So it's published in Canada in the fall of 1985, and there it's received, Margaret Atwood describes the reception as baffled and sometimes anxious. And the question was kind of like, could it happen here? So not like baffled and they didn't understand it, but baffled and like, is this productive? Yeah, like it took the wind out of them. Yeah. She said that the general response when it was published in the United States in February 1986, she said the response in the United States was, how long have we got before this yeah. thing so, like, comes to pass. So in Canada, that was like, hmm, do you think this could happen here? But in the United States, it was like, okay, start the countdown. How long do we have <laughs> before this happens? Yeah. And she said it in the United States because... Well, there a lot of reasons. Yeah. Because religion has been very important to the development of our country. Yeah. And she said that the heavy-handed theocracy of Puritan New England... And its marked bias against women would feed the opportunity of a period of social chaos to reassert itself. So she knew that our cultural origins were puritanical. Yes, And so she said it in America, even though she was Canadian, because I guess it just seemed like it was something that would probably happen here. (laughs) It's more likely. (laughs) And... So it's interesting because it's a class issue, right, in the book. There's a ruling class and there's an underclass. And what she said is since ruling classes always make sure they get the best and rarest of desirable goods and services, and usually that's like diamonds, gems, silks. Oil. But in this case, the rare and desirable resource is fertile women. And And children. And children. And so one way or another, they're going to get reproductive control. Right. And so it's interesting to take the commodification of women to its most extreme. Most extreme. extreme. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so that is a thread that kind of runs through our culture. Yeah. <laughs> our class system. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a thread that runs through the class system, right, is commodification of women in some way. Yes. Obviously to a more subtle degree than in the book. But she took that idea to its most extreme. She was fascinated because of her studies at Harvard and college and her personal reading. She's fascinated by three things: dystopian fiction, which was very popular right in the twentieth yes, century, sometimes called her sometimes her book is called Speculative fiction, which means it's about a person speculating. like about, a what if? Yes, like okay. yeah. so dystopian fiction now her book is sometimes called science fiction. I don't see that. I don't either. How is it science fiction? Uh, It doesn't matter. We can move on. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see it. So she's fascinated by dystopian fiction. She's fascinated by uh, 17th and 18th century Americans. So Puritans, witch trials, those kinds of things. And she's fascinated with dictatorships. Yes. So, of course, we see all three of those converge in this book. Right. And there's a quote I put in the notes that you also put in the quotes, but I'm going to read it first because it's going to lay the groundwork for what you're about to tell us. So she said, I made a rule for myself I would not include anything that human beings had not already done in some other place or time, or for which the technology did not already exist. I did not wish to be accused of dark, twisted inventions, or of misrepresenting the human potential for deplorable behavior. And she does get accused of that when people discuss this book and in reviews for this book, they say... That would never happen. Right. And so... She's emphasizing here, and she she told us this years later after the book came out, but she did not include anything that human beings had not already done in some place or time or for which the technology did not already exist. The group activated hangings, the tearing apart of human beings, the clothing specific to castes and classes— The forced childbearing, the appropriation of the results, children stolen by regimes in place for upbringing with high-ranking officials, forbidding of literacy, denial of property rights, all had precedents, and many of these were to be found, not in other cultures and religions, but within Western society and within the quote-unquote Christian tradition itself. And that was all her quote. That wasn't you. Yes. (laughs) That was all Margaret Atwood. Uh, talking about writing The Handmaid's Tale. And so I think that's important for us to keep in mind because we do think of what happens in the book as being impossible and extreme. Right. And what she's telling us is it's It's not not not. only possible, but it has happened. Maybe it didn't look exactly like that. Right. But it's happened. Will happen. Is happening. Just kidding. Now? Yeah. Tell us about history. God, you're like a horse trying to get out of a gate. Okay. So in this book, The time period in which she writes it is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, We've talked about this before, about fiction and reality and historical context all um, influencing each other. Yes. And in this case, this is such a perfect example. Okay. In 1986, who was president in the United States? I'm going to guess Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Do you know who the prime minister is in Britain? (laughs) No. Margaret Thatcher. Oh, okay. So, in both countries, which we generally think of as leading the West, especially during the Cold War. Yeah there was a conservative revival okay so that's a backlash to social liberalization of the 1960s and early 1970s uh but also a backlash to feminism so you're saying in the 60s and 70s we got liberal right like that's the peace classic love. liberal yeah yeah and so then people are like eh, we're getting too free and too liberal and too too many hippies running around here. We gotta <laughs> well, so, we gotta shut this down. Well, in the United States, you had the Great Society, so that fundamentally changes government and provides more welfare. It changes the function and nature of what our government is expected to do for us. And then, as far as um, Supreme Court cases, you had Griswold versus Connecticut, which allowed women to have access to birth control, even if they weren't married. Well, Griswold was married, but yes, oh, eventually. Okay, this was allowing married people to have access. Okay. And then we had Roe v. Wade, which allowed abortion within certain limits. Yes. And top of all of that, so we have this feeling like there's like this moral decay, right? Some people have a feeling there's just moral decay. It's becoming too liberal. We lose trust in our government because we had Nixon and we had the Vietnam War. Yeah. So it's like everything's falling apart. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Nobody has good values anymore. So is this cyclical? Because I feel like I heard this like 10 years ago, like five years ago. Yes. Yes. Okay. This comes in waves. So in the 1980s, the wave that crests here is going to be the moral majority, which is led by Jerry Falwell and which is going to motivate churches and Christians to join political movements and to get involved in the political system, which some churches had opted out of until that point. Yeah. And we're also going to see the rise of Phyllis Schlafly and her group Stop ERA. So let me tell you about Phyllis Schlafly. Is it going to be how much you love and admire her? Phyllis Schlafly is... The worst, <laughs> M- the worst. I'm not going to disagree I with you. Can't, I just she's real bad. <laughs> that is the mildest way to say that. But there is so she's from a famous family in St. Louis. I think so. And her family also owns a beer company. There's oh I didn't know that Schlafly Beer, oh, which okay. I knew about before. Before I knew about her. So the ERA was the Equal Rights Amendment. Yes. It's passed by Congress in 1972, and then it's sent to the states for ratification. So this would have made sexes equal Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. So you cannot discriminate against somebody based on being male or female. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems pretty basic. Mm -hmm. So it got approved by 35 states pretty quickly. So by 1977, 35 states have signed on. But we need 38 to go into the Constitution. So Congress is going to extend the deadline. To 1982 and great, that great year <laughs> is that the year that something happened important I, I was born yeah yeah and so her stop era movement is able to derail the era ratification in enough states that it never happens so it just fizzles out what were her arguments against the era so there was this idea that women have special protections because they're women that's what it was and so if you get rid of those special protections, women will have to act like men, will have to be drafted into the military, which, you know, by 1980, we're not drafting anymore anyway. Right. That's, okay. So it was this whole, like, we don't want to, ha- our women should be women. We're back to the gender confusion yes. argument. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. So you're telling me that the Equal Rights Amendment is passed by both houses of Congress, well, to be an amendment, into a constitution, it has to pass Congress, and then it goes to the states for ratification. Right. Because the people have to vote to change the constitution. I watched Schoolhouse Rock. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't know. So it passed both houses of Congress. It gets 35 states. But we need 38. We need 38. Yes. And she manages to derail that effort, even though we get an extension to 1982. Yes. On top of all of that, we have national concerns about the possibility of nuclear war because it is the Cold War. Sure. I mean, it's winding down, but we're still in it. Sure. Pollution. Do you remember the show in the 80s, Captain Planet? Uh huh. Where like it's a superhero, but he stops pollution. Yeah. So like that was in the national conversation. Yeah. At, I feel like at that time we were very obsessed with um, the hole in the ozone layer. Yes. And what in okay. Early uh, 80s and 90s. And what Yeah, I guess that was the early 90s was the ozone layer was all like anybody cared about. Right. Yeah. And declining birth rates for certain groups. That's a little bit of a dog whistle. Because white people were not having as many children. White middle class educated women were choosing to have fewer children. I wonder why. So if white middle class educated women are not having children. That means obviously we're going to be taken over. Right. by By the poor's and by the people of color, and we can't have that. Right, is what they were thinking. Yes, yes, exactly. So there's a lot of, like, anxiety within certain corners of the United States. So what you're saying is rich white people were scared. I'm not going to be that general about it. That's what it was. Rich white people were scared. And there was a lot of talk, like, how do we incentivize motherhood? How do we bring respect and dignity back to motherhood? Why are so many women going to work? Why aren't they choosing to stay home? You know, maybe because, well, I don't want to get into economics, but maybe because it's expensive <laughs> and it's hard to raise a child on one income household. Yeah, and I mean that's that that was that was all in Phyllis Schlafly's uh stump speeches too, right? Like the importance of motherhood and of staying my, home and how you're ruining the family. My favorite part of her is that she has six children and she's Preaching to all these other women about staying home and raising their children. But she's traveling across the country. Without her children. Without her children. (laughs) To tell other people to stay home. Yeah. Good lady. Not a fan. (laughs) The worst. Why did you bring her up? I'm going to be mad all day. But it's important to put that social context there. Because then when this book is released, Atwood is tapping into all of those anxieties and fears Mm -hmm. and concerns for our country. So when it's released... It immediately pretty much becomes a bestseller. Yeah, it has since sold millions of copies. It's been banned in high schools. It's never been out of print. Never been out of print. Yeah, which is a big deal. It's also a big deal to get banned in several high schools. It's like a badge of honor. All the best books are banned. banned. Well, I guess also really terrible books get banned because I think Twilight books are banned in some places. So that's a whole different conversation. It, It doesn't mean that it's good, but it is it does mean that it has some controversial ideas right so harry potter gets banned sometimes um because it, i guess it has the word witchcraft i don't know um but yeah this book has been banned by by many people when i was in high school we had to do a project on banned books and you had to choose a banned book from a list that the teacher had made up and then you had to read it and like do a book report and like i don't know make a poster it was the 90s and uh, it was always, this book was on the list always. I did the electric Kool-Aid acid test because I feel like that sounded cool to me and I didn't know what it was. It was it, That book is actually not appropriate for school. <laughs> Don't read that if you're not that in college. Is, that is not appropriate for a 17-year-old, 16-year-old to read. I have a question about this project. Okay, yeah. So were the books banned at your school? No, they were just books that had been banned. Oh, uh, okay. So y'all could go get them. Yeah. Because that would be a really interesting project if she picked books that were banned <laughs> by your school. Like, guys, you're going to go to the public library. No, we, we lived in the suburbs. All right. So it's also won several awards and 1987, the Author C. Clark Award. Which is an award for science fiction. Really? Yes. It's an award for science fiction published in the United Kingdom. All right. uh, so she's... glad I've been vindicated. <laughs> she's also nominated for the 1986 Nebula Award. Also, I think, an award for science fiction. 1986 Booker Prize and the 1987 Prometheus Award. Mm-hmm. So was it well... So it was a bestseller. So obviously people liked it. What about critical reception? I know that Margaret Atwood famous, famously has criticized the way the New York Times received the book. I think... Because I went back and I read some of these reviews. Yeah. And I pulled some quotes out. And they're really mixed. And I think people are bringing their own biases to this book and i also think a lot of people don't get it maybe that's it they uh, like they understand what's happening in the book but they don't (laughs) they can read yeah but they don't understand the thematic current and the commentary and i also noticed reading through the reviews that the men picked up on different things than the women did okay so in reading these reviews the men talked about how there's nuclear waste, and there's a lot of pollution, and there's an environmental crisis. Which, yes, all of that's yeah, in it there. Is. It's in us. But that's just part of the dystopian backdrop, right? That's just part of her wor- the, the world building that she does to show us why the society is in such desperate straits. Right. And they seemed, not all of them, but a lot of them seem to have missed, I don't know, the main point of the book. Yeah. Which is that women are being objectified and commodified commodified sex slaves just absolutely controlled yeah I mean even the wives are absolutely controlled yeah and I feel like they didn't pick up on that as much and they didn't also pick up on the idea of women who are socialized into turning against each other yes so when you talk about Phyllis Schlafly I think that if this book were reality she would be the very first aunt yes right so talk about a woman who is okay with the subjugation of women as long as it's not happening to me well and as long as it's the quote-unquote right women yeah who are being attacked yeah so I think the negative reviews here are worth spending a little bit of time on yeah because I see one of them is from Barbara Ehrenreich which is surprising to me because she's she herself is a pretty progressive well-respected well-respected feminist writer so she said this novel is being greeted as a long-awaited feminist dystopia and i'm afraid that for some time it will be viewed as a test of the imaginative power of the feminist paranoia that doesn't sound i'm not sure i know what that means (laughs) (laughs) it's like she's saying that this is going to be the standard for this hysteria almost that feminists have i see but that she's like it's not even that good Alfred is a sappy stand-in i mean i don't read that book and get the offer is sappy at all i mean so what she's doing in that review is she's comparing it to 1984 is exactly that right? okay yes so she's saying that offred is a sappy stand-in for winston yes. the main character in 1984 and gilead seems at times to be only a coloring book version of oceania which is Right. The society in 1984. It may be because Atwood means to do more than scare us about the obvious consequences. So she's basically saying it's a weak version of 1984 and it's going to make people think women are hysterical. So a lot of the negative reviews, if you kind of read between the subtext, talked about paranoia, uh, talked about exaggerated fears. And I feel like the word they were purposely not saying... Is hysterical. Okay. Because any time a woman gets upset about something, Allegra... Sure. She's hysterical. Right. It's unreasonable. Right. Her floating uterus has caused her to have too many emotions. Yes. But when a dude cries because someone died in a video game, that's totally fine. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Okay. And they also do compare a lot of this to Brave New World in 1984. hmm Some of those comparisons are fair. I think some of them are not. Well, so... I, I don't think it's fair to compare two books that are not attempting to do similar things. And I think maybe some of the reason that the book is getting negative criticism is because people just assumed that the book was trying to do what 1984 and Brave New World were trying to do, right? All three of them have some similarities, sure. And all three of them are making a great deal of social commentary. All three of them have imagined societies where they are taking flaws of our current social structure and taking them to the extreme to show us the danger that is in store for us if we follow along a particular path. But I don't think that it makes any sense to compare Gilead to Oceania. But beyond that, I don't think it makes any sense to compare a book by George Orwell to a book by Margaret Atwood, right? They're written in different historical contexts yes. because Orwell didn't write that book in 1984. <laughs> so I, I just feel like those aren't reasonable comparisons. I feel like it would be fair in 1986 to say this book is in the vein of. Sure. Because those are the two most well-known books people would have read at that time. Yeah. That have projected these what-ifs into the future. But but then to say, but she's doing something different. Completely different. Yes. And by the way, this is the first time somebody's focused specifically on women. Women, mm-hmm. We're not pretending like what would happen to women doesn't have the potential for being worse. Well, and I think the gender of the author matters in these reviews, right? Well, I don't think a lot of people were calling books by men sappy so or claiming that they were paranoid or hysterical i don't think that um, maybe they did maybe a lot of people called george orwell hysterical but or paranoid but i don't feel like i've ever read anybody calling him hysterical like i feel like that (laughs) word is reserved for women oh it is for sure it is yeah so i'm gonna read this other negative review okay atwood's adept style renders the grim atmosphere of the future quite palpably That's like the most mild praise you could give someone. She described it well enough for us to imagine. But the didacticism of the novel wears thin. Oh, my God. The book is... (laughs) Do you hate this guy? The book is simply too obvious. What? To support its fictional context. Still, Atwood is quite an esteemed fiction writer, the author of such well-received novels as Surfacing and Life Before Man, two books I literally have never heard of, and I, I studied literature in college. Demand for her latest effort, therefore, is bound to be high. Unfortunately, the number of disappointed readers may be equally high. The didacticism of the novel wears thin. The book is simply too obvious. So he's accusing her of beating us over the head with it. Yes. And in the other review... The reviewer seems to have missed the point. (laughs) Yes. So... So you can make no one happy. Just do what you want to do. Too much, but not enough. She really has, like, a hard time with the reviewers here. I feel like she was probably just screaming at them. Like, do you not understand? Do you not get the point of it? I hope she was laughing at them. And And I hope, really, the idea that it has resonated with so many people is both kind of horrifying, but also redeeming in terms of the book and its reputation well yeah when he says the number of disappointed readers may be equally high which is by the way uh brad hooper if we didn't say it before the brad hooper from Booklist. just kidding it has resonated with people right and mm-hmm. not only that but it has had several adaptations into other forms of media yeah so it's been a 1990s film which i've watched and i'm gonna say is not great <laughs> don't don't waste your time well um a 2000 opera no <laughs> a television miniseries okay which was better than the 1990s and then now the hulu series which is on its third season so it's definitely when, resonated did, it, when with did it finish with the content of the book the hulu series yeah uh the hulu series season one is exactly the book it ends exactly where the book did so who wrote seasons two and three uh, Atwood, I think is an executive producer. Okay. So she's in consultant, but, um, she's not, she's not dictating the story to them like she was in season one. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, because maybe this is jumping into the book too much, but if you remember the book ends and we don't know what happens to yeah. the main character. Yeah. So this is carrying forward that, well, let's see where she goes okay. after this. Atwood has a prequel of the book coming out, I think next year or maybe the year after. I feel like this is going to be scarier. Called The Testaments. I feel like that's going to be scarier. Yeah, I'm excited to see what it is. Because I think culturally we might be closer to that than we want to believe. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about the novel. Okay. Which I guess we should say that we're focusing on the book, not the series. Yes, we're focusing on the book. So the book is set in the near future, no given time, um, New England. So within the geographical United States. The United States government itself has fallen. Yes. Due to a coup. Yes. God, I love that word. I ran around my whole childhood just saying the word coop. Um, <laughs> so really, it's a military state. Yeah. So the early leaders of Gilead have assassinated the president and the members of Congress and have created a military-controlled state, and then they form the government after that. Okay. Um, And so the Republic of Gilead takes power and is a theocracy, which is government by religion, which is also what the Puritans had. Yes. And crackdown on women's rights. I remember one of the first things that happens, and this is actually in a flashback. So this is pre-Gilead, but I think maybe this is during the coup. One of the first things that happens is that if you're a woman and you have money or you had a bank account, all of your money – was given to or transferred into the account of your husband or your father. And I believe property too. Yeah. So to your male chaperone. It was always the intention of the Republic of Gilead to, I mean, that was one of their leading causes Yes, was to take rights and power away from women, forbidding them to hold jobs, um, forbidding them to own property, to own their own money. And, they were immediately arresting and executing people who resisted yes. or opposed them. Yes. So then they set up the, the Republic. The, the Republic. And that's when they started the system of... The Handmaids. The Handmaids. So, I I mean, it's I guess it's kind of a caste system, right? So we have a caste system. Yeah. Because we have the commanders, who are the elites. Mm-hmm. We have the Econo people, who are Christians that are not in sinful relationships. Yeah. But they're not elites. And they're not discussed a whole lot in the book, but they're kind of in the background. They would not have been assigned a handmaid. And then the handmaids are women who, previous to Gilead, had, quote-unquote, sinful relationships or sinful lifestyles. So they're being punished. But they've also proven... Fertile. To be fertile. Yes. Yes. So handmaids are assigned to commanders, to their families... And they first go through a training process. <laughs> training. Where they are put into, I mean, it seems like almost like a boot camp style scenario, right? They all sleep in cots in a large open room. They all have to wake up at a certain time. And they are trained to uh, be servile, right? To to do as they're told to not speak out of turn, to... It's an indoctrination camp is absolutely. what it is. And it's um, the Rachel and Leah reeducation Center, or sometimes that's shortened to the Red Center. Yeah. So the people who run that are called aunts. Yes. And they're women who are physically and mentally controlling and, I guess, abusing the handmaids in training. And there is some question as to whether the ants are, quote unquote, true believers in the system, or if they are just like going along to get along. Or if they're just sadistic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So th- their motivations, because this is all seen th- from Offred's point of view, right, are not fully explored. Well, I mean, and that's interesting, right? Are they people who were really true believers and they thought this is best for us and our society? And so it's... From their angle, tough love—what they're doing, or are they like, uh, I have to do this, or I'm going to get in trouble? Um, that's interesting, because of course, to offer, they're kind of evil. It wouldn't have made it. She wouldn't have been able to detect right whether they were or weren't. So once they go through training and they pass, assuming they aren't killed during that process, because some people are, and, and ones that refuse to cooperate, if they're not directly killed. They're sent to the quote-unquote colonies, which is like a nuclear waste site. And so they're cleaning up nuclear waste. And so they will die. Yeah. It is just a protracted death. It's going to take a little while. Um, It's always important for a dystopian society to have somewhere you can just send people off to. Right. So... They are assigned to a family once they graduate, I guess, from their training. Yes. And in the case of Alfred, she's assigned to... A- well, she has a first assignment that we don't read about. Yes. And then her second assignment is to the Waterfords. And the reason that's important is because if a handmaid had three failed assignments, she's assigned to three families and doesn't produce a child, then I think she was sent to the colonies too. Lovely. Yes. So the I, I guess the most... Graphic part of the experience for Offred is what she's sent there to do, which is during what is determined to be her fertile period of 48 to 72 hours, she is forced to have sex with her commander while the commander's wife holds her hands and wrists. So the the husband and wife are there together. Yes. And the handmaid is kind of just between them. Yes. And she is there as... A baby making kind of machine. Yes. Between those times, she is a worker in the house, but very light work, right? So she can walk to the store. Uh, but for the most part, she's just supposed to stay out of the way and not really get in the way of the wife. Does the wife, right. the wife of a commander, what is she called? So the wives also are very controlled. Yes. And they are also have given up part of their identities. So in this case, Mrs. Waterford is Serena Joy. Mm -hmm. and In the book, she's an older woman and she used to be like a televangelist and a singer. Mm -hmm. But now she's just Mrs. Waterford. She's not allowed to work. She's not allowed to read. She's not allowed to write. She gets to knit. The handmaid has to kind of stay away from the wife. Yes. Because it is painful to the wife to see the person that her husband has intercourse with. Yes. Right? Yes. In the TV show, Serena Joy is much younger than she is in the The book. Yes. I do remember in the book that sometimes they would all gather around for Serena to read from the Bible. No, they would gather around for Mr. Waterford to read from the Bible. Right, because wives are not allowed to read. No women, maybe except the aunts, are allowed to read. So the the word handmade to me, and this is the reason I didn't want to read the book, is like the person who helps a, a royal... Woman, get dressed and do her hair and arrange her personal affairs? Yes. Is that the has, what that word has always meant until this book? No. Okay. So they're using the biblical term handmaid. So there are some stories in the Old Testament about women who could not conceive. And so they had servants who they gave to their husband as, quote unquote, a handmaid. So the servant would sleep with the husband, and any children from that union would go to the wife. This was in the Bible? Yeah. A few times. I didn't know this. Like, oh, really? At, at all. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's the Rachel and Leah Center, because those are two biblical characters that did this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I mean, I know that Margaret Atwood said it, right? I didn't make any of this up, but still, I was like, that's not what a handmaid is. That's a little weird yeah. way to use the word. But no, that's the way to use the word originally. Well, I mean, they were servants too, right? But huh. this is the part where they gave them as handmaids huh. to the husband. Yeah. So the, I don't know where to move on from your shock. I'm just moving on. <laughs> I just am moving right along. I mean, we're going to go back to, to what Margaret Atwood said, right? And to yeah. say a lot of this happened and a lot of it happened in quote unquote Christian society. So Gilead, as you said, controls all women. Yes. It not just the handmaids, and not just the wives that there is an upper class and lower class of women and the upper class women have a say in their identities, right? No woman has a say in their identity. In the case of the handmaid, they have no... Literally no identity. No identity. Their name is gone and they are just referred to as of the person who they're assigned to. So Offred is of Fred. And, because her commander is Fred Waterford. And we don't know that originally, and so... No, we don't. You're 50, 60, I don't know, 70 pages into the book when you realize that Alfred, which just sounds like a freaky, futuristic name, is actually of Fred. And then, of course, you meet of Glenn and all of these other characters. Yes. Ugh. And so what also that would mean is if you went from one family to another, then your name would change. Yes, and that's on purpose. Gross. Well, because these women... Once they have the children, they don't exist in the household anymore. They're going to a next assignment. Oh, because they can't be around the children. The children. Uh, they don't leave the house very much. They're constantly being watched by another group we haven't talked about yet called the Eyes, which are the spies of Gilead. And maybe that's what Phyllis Schlafly would have been doing. She was an eye? Maybe. <laughs> I said she would be an aunt, but maybe she'd be an eye. Aside from wives and handmaids. And the aunts, because we talked about that. Yeah. Uh, We also have Marthas. So, Marthas are women who are not fertile, Mm -hmm. who haven't committed any egregious sins. Okay. But they weren't in Christian marriages. And so, they're servants. So, they're cooking, cleaning, that kind of thing. Okay. So, all of the people who were in good Christian marriages, who aren't commanders. First marriages, by the way. (sighs) Oh, yeah. So, you would have been a handmaid. I would. (laughs) Oh, man. So, or a Martha, maybe. Who knows? So a Martha you is... You can't cook or clean. I can learn. <laughs> uh, so a Martha is, is in the same position as a handmaid. It's just she's not fertile. In the same position as... In terms of they came, their origins are the same, right? They were not in Christian marriages right? when right, the right. coup began. I mean, or maybe they had never been married at all. Okay. But they have some domestic skill, okay. which can be utilized. So the people who were in good Christian marriages, living uh, lives deemed by the society as acceptable, those are the Okano people. Yes. Okay. Yes. Those are the lower class. Yes. So Martha's are servants, general cooking, cleaning, and Martha's have strained relationships typically with the handmaid's with everyone yeah nobody's happy nobody's happy i mean except i guess the dudes and even some of them are not happy yeah which we find out in the book too yeah okay there's another group of women that we haven't talked about yet and you don't find out about till i want to say at least halfway through the book and that would be the jezebels do you remember the jezebels no so the jezebels are handmaids that were rebellious or that didn't work out but they're usually very attractive And the commanders didn't want to send them to the colonies. So they basically created a brothel and the Jezebels lived there. You know, that's interesting because I feel like that would happen. It's very hypocritical, but it's also very on brand, right? So if a woman is a commodity. Yes. And if her first way of being valued is that she can bear children. Right. But she can't. But she's still really hot. So then she's a commodity in a separate way. Right. But I still don't want to get rid of her because still just her body, not herself, but her body is of some value to me as a dude, as a powerful man in society. So, yeah, it does show the hypocrisy because they're supposed to be basing all of this on Christianity. Morality. morality (laughs) Yeah. And... All of their sexual infidelity is based on having children so that we can raise children and keep our society going. Yeah. Because Mr. Waterford takes Alfred to Jezebel's at some point in the novel. And is kind of like showing her around. Huh. Yeah. I don't remember that at all. But I believe you. Um, Some other issues in this book. And, and these are things I think are legitimate criticisms of the book. Mm-hmm. Race is not... Really addressed in the book. Now, there's reasons for it, um, but African-Americans are essentially rounded up, and they're called the Children of Ham, and they are removed from society. So there's a question about what that means, but it kind of seems like they're deported out of America and sent to their own colony. Mm-hmm. So everyone we're in contact with in the book is a white, quote-unquote, white American. So that's a different in the show. It is. Um, and also Jewish-Americans in the book were given the chance to convert and if they didn't convert then they were deported to israel interesting yes now in the show the modern hulu version uh the i think it's the executive producer bruce miller Mm -hmm. he said i cannot make a show with just white people right like i cannot do that but then the problem is race is never really fully addressed in the show either because it's not addressed in the source material right yeah so because in the show her best friend Moira is played by a black actress and so there are characters of color in the show and that character is in the book but she's white in the book and so what you're saying is there are characters of color in the show but we're still not actually talking about race you've just included a more diverse cast right the only real attempt I've made has been in the third season and some of the ants are sitting around discussing what handmaid they're going to send to what family And there's this offhand comment of, oh, we can't send that person there because they don't want a colored handmade," And that's it. That's the only discussion. That's not really a very in-depth discussion of race. No, but I think the show's heard the criticism that they haven't talked about race. And so that was like them trying to do it. Yeah. But it's hard to introduce that discussion three seasons in. Got to find a way. I think the show originally thought that like children are so valuable that race will cease to matter. Just anybody yeah. that can give us a child will be valued and important. But I don't think anybody watching that, knowing that this is based on American society, would for a single minute believe <laughs> exactly. that, oh, we're immediately no we're longer in a, racist. We're in a post-racial society. Nope, we don't care about that anymore, and that never factors in. Yeah, I don't think anybody would believe that. That doesn't, I mean... Yeah, that, there's some problems there, that right? seems less plausible than literally everything else that <laughs> happens in this book. So Alfred is the main character, and... The book is really told from her perspective. So there are things that we don't know because she doesn't know them, right? Like how the aunts got to where they are, things like that. We do get flashbacks into her life. We never know her before name. Is that right? Right. Um, But we do know her before husband's name. Right. So she was married to someone named Luke. Who was previously married to another woman. Okay. So that's right. And they had an affair and then they got married. So that's why she ended up as a handmaid and not an econo person. Because she quote unquote broke up a marriage. Got it. They had. So, I mean, they had to do a lot of investigation into each individual person in order to rank them. And that seems a little bit interesting. Well, and it could be a system of telling on each other. Yeah, that's true. Because, I mean, we had that during the Cold War. Hey, if you think your neighbor's a Russian, call this phone number. Yeah. So in some of the flashbacks that we get, and we get these throughout the book, so we don't know her whole backstory until the book is through um she and her husband and their child try to flee right they're in a, yes. a car they're trying to run away um but they are eventually caught and she doesn't know what's happened so they're taking her kid because they want to raise you know the child they're is give also that child to a commander's family yes and we don't know what happened to luke we assume he's killed but we don't know that yeah And so also for a while, she doesn't know what's happened to her best friend. Well, so her friend does end up at the Red Center with her. But then um, she's too rebellious and she ran away. And so there's this question like, did she make it out? Was she killed? We don't know. Well, she turns up later at Jezebel's. And so what happens with Alfred at the Waterfords house is a little interesting and also reveals a lot of the hypocrisy happening in those commanders families. So there's a guy who works for the Waterfords. I think he does like the outdoor work, right? He fixes cars. And He's stuff the like gardener that. and the chauffeur. And so his name is Nick and Alfred yes. mm-hmm. and Nick. so Alfred is wearing the blinders, right? The big aproned thing, thing they call over... it wings. Over her face. Yeah. Because she's not really supposed to be making eye contact with people. You know, so she and Nick, I remember in the book, have like a very minor flirtation, right? So they might smile at each other. She might, you know, sneak a look at him. But Serena, the, the wife of the commander, forces them sort of to have a relationship because... She knows, Serena knows, that her husband is the reason that the handmaids aren't getting pregnant. Like, she knows it's her husband who is infertile and not the handmaids. And she wants a child. And so she basically forces Offred to have sex with Nick to get pregnant. Yes, and legally in Gilead... Men are not infertile, right? So, if a handmaid is not getting pregnant, even if you have 10 handmaids and they're not getting pregnant, it's your handmaids are defective, right? Not the commander, right? Because we can't question his and masculinity. A, and there's a doctor, too, right? Yes. That the handmaids go to, and the doctor also offers a similar service, right? Like, right. I will impregnate you to make your life easier, yes. But if I remember right, Alfred is afraid that that's a trick, like, yes. she's afraid that the eyes. That the society has made the doctor say that to see if she'll go for it, to see if she'll get in trouble. Right. So she also has a secret relationship with the commander and they, I mean, I think they play Scrabble together and he lets her read a book every now and then. Vogue. Vogue magazine. Okay. And she, we don't know what happens to her at the end, right? At the end of the book, we we know she's pregnant now. Yeah. And there's a van that shows up to take her away. And there's a question in the book. Of if it's the eyes that are coming because she's had this illicit relationship with Nick, or if it's Mayday, which is the rescue organization, pretending to be the eyes and they're gonna try to get her out of Gilead. We don't know. Interesting for an author to leave a book that way. Well, and then, okay, so then we jump way in the future in the epilogue. Do you remember the epilogue? No. The epilogue is very weird (laughs) (laughs) because Gilead is done, we're hundreds of years in the future. And we're at an academic conference. I do remember that, right? And they're studying. And they have found these new documents, which is The Handmaid's Tale. And they're discussing at this conference how much of it is reliable and how much of it is not reliable and who was her commander was she using fake names for them and did she live or not and so there's this huge question even there but they're treating it as this like academic study and like they're making jokes at points in the conference and it's the way that we at historical conferences now handle the past yeah. right like we're yeah. not that emotionally invested right. in it yeah but having just read all of these brutal things mm-hmm. that she went through you get kind of angry yeah. that they're just like offhandedly yeah. describing her this way. So, I mean, we're that leads us to believe that she did live if she wrote this down. She lived long enough to record the story because maybe she got to a safe house, wrote it down, and then was going on to the next safe house and was killed. Mm-hmm. But we have no evidence that she ever completely got out. I'd, I'm I'm fascinated by why an author would leave a book with that ending because it has to be to emphasize the theme in some way, right? And to show us that literally everything that happens to these handmaids could be one of two things. It could be the rare person here to save you in reality or someone's here to crush you. And really you don't have any power and you don't have the ability to discern one or the other. And I think that's interesting because it, it happens several times, right? You don't know The same thing about Serena. Does she mean to help or hurt you? You don't know the same about the doctor when they meet each other, right? And they don't know are you cool? Can I talk to you? Or are you a person who constantly reports people to the eye? Well, and Alfred has been brutalized. Is she seeing everything clearly? Yeah. Or has her treatment colored the way she's viewing the world? Yeah. So we don't even know if she's a reliable narrator or not, do we? I mean, we kind of want to believe her. Yeah. But there's also a good chance that maybe she is overreacting to some things. Yeah. Like the doctor. I mean, but at the same time, that is what the society is engineered to yes. do. Yeah. It is engineered to make you think, even though we are in reality only being able to watch you from a few places, we want you to think we can see you all the time. The thing I really we like. We want you to always wonder. Yeah. If I steal an apple, if I do whatever, are they going to know? Exactly. The ending, as far as like from a historian's point of view, I really like it because Alfred wasn't an important person in Gilead. Yeah. And so we do lose people all the time in the historical narrative. Yeah. Like, if you don't have the documents, you can't follow somebody. That seems very realistic to me. Because there there wasn't meticulous record-keeping for people of lower social status. Well, and then if she is caught and executed, she's executed as Offred. Or if she moved on to oh, another yeah. commander, she's executed as That's of a Glenn. good point. I don't know how to connect that to her before person. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's actually interesting because yeah, her whole identity is a race. So even if there is a record of her, it would be in a different name. And exactly. so we wouldn't know that this is the same person as this because they weren't even allowed to retain their own names. Anything. And so I do want to talk a little bit – I'm going to try not to be too much of an English teacher here. Okay. But I do want to talk a little bit about the flashbacks. Okay. Because – So a lot of times people read it and they think of the flashbacks as fill in for her character development to get us to know and understand her a little bit better. And to be like emotionally invested. To be more emotionally invested in her, uh, to to find her more relatable and to see her circumstances as I could have had that life, this could be happening to me, whatever. That's true. But I think that the flashbacks have a larger purpose in the book and I think That even though we think of them as taking place during the good time, right? Like, because it's less oppressive and she had a job and she had a bank account and she had a cute apartment, we think of that as the good time. But I think there are clues in those flashbacks that it's leading, they are on their way to this. This quote is from the book and is in reference to the before time. And it says, women were not protected then. I remember the rules, rules that were never spelled out, but that every woman knew don't open your door to a stranger, even if he says he's the police. Make him slide his ID under the door. Don't stop on the road to help a motorist pretending to be in trouble. Keep the locks on and keep going. If anyone whistles, don't turn to look. Don't go into a laundromat by yourself at night. And so these are things that you are familiar with, that you have heard, that I have heard, that everyone is that knows about, right? And again, all of these refer to danger that exists for women, danger in the form of a man, Right. right. Mm-hmm. And so these are basically ways to not get raped. Right. right. Yeah. And so obviously it is paralleling our own society and culture, but also putting all of the responsibility onto a woman. Right. Right. The rules, when she says, I remember the rules, rules that were never spelled out, but that every woman Yeah, knew. the rule isn't don't rape a woman. Right. That should be the rule. Right. Don't be a creep. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. And then later in the book, Japanese tourists come over to see Gilead. Yes. And these are Japanese tourists who haven't gone through this process. And it's a reminder to us that Gilead is is operating this way. In the context of a larger world, a larger world which has not basically a modern world gone back in time or is living in a dystopia. It is a modern world where in those societies, women have the same freedoms that women used to have in America. So the Japanese tourists are there to see Gilead and Alfred is describing them. And she says, their heads are uncovered and their hair too is exposed in all its darkness and sexuality. They wear lipstick, red, outlining the damp cavities of their mouths like scrawls on a washroom wall of the time before. I stop walking. Of Glenn stops beside me, and I know that she too cannot take her eyes off these women. We are fascinated, but also repelled. They seem undressed. It has taken so little time to change our minds about things like this. And so they see women dressed probably the way they used to dress. Exactly. Maybe even a little bit more formally if they're touring Gilead. And so they think uncovered hair is shocking. They see the hair as being sexual. They see lipstick as being totally inappropriate. We are fascinated but also repelled. But she notices, like she does a little metacognition and says it has taken so little time to change our minds about things like this to see these women in such a different context. Yes, and so it's working in terms of, I guess, brainwashing the women. Yeah, the indoctrination sticks. Yeah, that's the more historically appropriate word, indoctrination. So do we want to talk about the historical influences that Atwood draws on? I mean, you do. I do. So uh, first off, we've talked about this a lot, uh, Puritan theocracy. Yeah. So the 1600s Puritans come over to the New World. Mm-hmm. And they do so because they're, quote unquote, persecuted by the Church of England. Mm-hmm. So they're wanting to start over where nobody can tell them what to do. Puritans are not welcoming people. They're not warm and fuzzy. Right. You show up and you're a Quaker, they hang you. You better get in line. You better follow the rules. So that very much has a Gilead tone to Mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah. You will be like us. You will do exactly what you need to do. Their women are very tightly controlled. A hundred years later, well, 90 years later, 1690s, we have the Salem witch trials. Mm -hmm. And this is something that um, Atwood talks about a lot as being influence on this book. Because you have this, like, hysteria that women are gaining power, that women are too sexualized, they're acting out, they must be in league with the devil. Mm -hmm. So what's our solution? I mean, if you're different in some way, if, I mean, and the whole like the notion of the old maid, so an old unmarried woman, or a girl who doesn't seem interested in being as Puritan, or someone who isn't just interested in domestic affairs, in getting married, anybody who's different, right, is open to persecution. And we're and so we have created this culture of fear, right? That anybody can report on anybody, that any that anybody could be watching you, that anybody could be a spy, that Um, you could get in trouble for not towing the line exactly. Well, and how do you prove you're not a witch? I've never been able to. (laughs) I mean, that's an impossible task that you gave these women. And so they were hung. Now, other influences that I think we don't think about quite as much, but they're in here. In 1979, we have the Iranian Revolution. And this is a really, really, really interesting revolution historically because Iran was a modern country. You had women who were university professors. And this revolution that happens takes the culture backwards in some restraints. And so women are removed from the universities. They're removed from public life. They have to become fully covered. Like physically covered. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to have male chaperones. So, this is a case in which women had modern day freedoms and then lost them. Some people say, oh, that could never happen. Well, it happened. You know, it depends on who's in control of the government and whether the government is based on subjective religious beliefs. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we also have the Romanian ban on birth control. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not brushed up on my Romanian history. <laughs> Romanian ban on birth control. Yes. So, I'm going to assume I'm not the only one who doesn't know. Probably not. So in 1966, the Romanian president is going to issue decree 770, which bans birth control and abortion. And they're going to order all Romanian women of childbearing age to produce at least five children. I'm sorry. What? Yes. So to enforce it, they're going to have secret police installed in hospitals. Women were subjected to monthly pregnancy tests, and sex mm. education in school is going to focus on just the benefits of motherhood. How great it is to be a mom. If you were childless, you were taxed more heavily. So that's the, like, ordering you to is the taxes. Now, they did this because their birth rate was low. So this goes into effect, and literally the year after it goes into effect, their um, birth rate doubled. But this also means the child morality rate. Child morality yeah. rate. Right? It's very low. <laughs> Children are very immoral. So this also means that the child mortality rate and the women in childbirth. Mm -hmm. So infant mortality, maternal mortality. Thank you. That was the word I couldn't think of. Both go up, obviously. We know of at least 9,000 women that died as a result of an illegal abortion. And we think somewhere around 100,000 babies are abandoned in orphanages because their families couldn't afford them. But then those orphanages are overrun, and they don't have enough people working there. They don't have enough supplies for the children. So these are really, really, really just terrible, terrible places. The decree is reversed in 1990. But it came into being in 1966? Yes. So like 24 years? Yes. Oof. Yes. And... I mean, you can get into it. There's so many consequences of that. But it shows you what can happen to a society that says they want a higher birth rate, but then they can't handle it. Like there's all these tragic well, outcomes. There's also the whole, I mean, the to make it very simplistic, right? There's like a carrot and a stick rule here. Yes. And so to say like we want a higher birth rate, so why don't we make it? safer, easier? Why don't we make it more affordable to have children? Those things would raise a birth rate, right? A lot of people just don't have another kid because they can't afford to or because they have certain challenges, financial, medical, personal. So instead of saying like, let's incentivize it, let's make it easier, let's clear the path a little bit, we're going to say, let's just shove you down this path no matter what happens to you. Yeah. You're going to kill people. You're going to have infant mortality. You're going to have maternal mortality. You're going to have abortions. You're going to have orphanages. You're going to have, I mean, when you're showing how little you care for your actual people. I'm not a political science major, but this doesn't seem that complicated to me. It's not. It's not. Like, I understand why a society would be concerned with a very low birth rate, but just doesn't seem like this is the way to go. Yeah. You already don't regard women as fully human. Oh, that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> that's what I was missing. I was missing that detail. Women Women are not people. They're I not agree. people. Still, so, still trying to get our minds wrapped around that idea that we are people. That's what I forgot. Okay. Uh, my favorite thing that she includes is the new jersey handmaidens so this is a group i actually didn't know anything about so it was kind of fun to go so this is a list of things that margaret atwood herself found and incorporated into the book okay so this is a fundamentalist christian group in new jersey the actual name of the group isn't is your husband from new jersey yes okay. but he was not involved in this called the people of hope so they want to return society to a biblical standard so no mixing fabrics? I guess. Don't eat the shellfish. Don't cut your hair. Yes. Okay. So this is started by a guy who was a stockbroker, but then became a Catholic priest and then decided like they were too liberal and then started his own group. That's a roller coaster. Yeah. So within the People of Hope, the women were called the handmaidens of God. And so this is where Margaret Atwood kind of latched onto that word handmaid. Yeah, she thought like this. Oh, that's like that's a really good like, and word. that's a creepy way to yeah. use the word. Yeah, yeah. Um, so women and the people of hope are subservient to men, of course. Children are not allowed to date. Marriages are arranged, but by their fathers essentially. The mothers don't really get a say, obviously. And anyone outside of the church is "quote unquote" the empire of evil. So they're the only ones that understand God's used morality. To be, used to be a stockbroker, became a Catholic priest, and then started a fundamentalist Christian group in New Jersey. Yes. It just seems like some people start these groups just because they want to make women subservient. Like, it seems like that is the real end goal. It's not a byproduct of the goal of, like, living a biblical life. I mean, obviously, we don't know their real motivations, but it definitely seems that way. Well, and even if that is the motivation, nobody's ever going to say that in public, right? Obviously. All right. Then the last thing I want to point out here is something called the Indian Adoption Program, I feel like you skipped something that I wanted you to talk about. Oh, did you want to talk about radiation? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about radiation first. and we'll talk about the Indian adoption program. All right. So in the book, we have people that are cleaning up the colonies. And this is where we sent the uh, unwomen. Yeah. So an unwoman is a lesbian, a radical feminist, an adulterer who is not fertile. So anybody that they can't use as a handmaid, who won't get in line and follow the program. Right. Yeah. So they're not killed. Right. The state doesn't execute them. But they work them today. Or right, but it's lethal. Right. Okay. You're not gonna go shovel radiation and feel great. So but but Margaret Atwell said that she didn't put anything in the book that didn't exist. So somewhere in the world, you're telling me this happened somewhere in the world in the Soviet Union. Yes. So we have people in the Soviet Union who are forced into uranium mines to gather material for atomic bombs. Because again, Cold War got to keep up with the United States. These are mostly prisoners. So their prison sentence was sent to go get this uranium, which is obviously very radioactive the average lifespan of one of those prisoners is about two years from the time you get there to the time you are going to be poisoned with radiation and die we think somewhere roughly about five thousand men are sent to these uranium mines as prisoners but, but in the book it's feminists and lesbians yes yes i mean but so she changed some of the details right right i'm just but it happened. But that is in the society of Gilead. That is the most undesirable. Well, and a that also happened be. in the Holocaust too, right? We have concentration camps and we have work camps. Yeah. So we had some people that were sent to these camps and were literally worked to death to support the Nazi regime, right? But it's happened in other yeah. situations. She too. didn't invent any of it. Exactly. And yeah. right, the last thing is the Indian adoption project. I'm gonna guess that this is something where the United States government said, "Hey." Let's find a fair and judicious way to deal with the people who lived in this country before we got here. No. Oh, okay. That has never once happened. Never one, not one time has that happened. No, not, not that I'm aware of. All right, so in 1958, the Child Welfare League of America began the Indian Adoption Project. So basically, they went to reservations... And they noticed these terrible conditions that Native American children are living in. What they thought were terrible conditions. They really were terrible conditions. Okay. We have a lot of poverty. Uh, our schools on these reservations are not really up to standard. Children are sometimes sent to work at very young ages to help support the family. So there are terrible conditions on the reservations. Okay. So you and I would look at that and say, how can we make the reservations better? Right. How can we support them? How can we give bring jobs to the area? How can we How can help we improve the care? education? How can we incentivize teaching and building up the schools right the child welfare league looked at this and thought well we obviously can't leave these children in the reservations these are terrible places so they basically stole the children and then adopted them out to white american families i'm sorry they just said this child appears to be living in a pretty bad condition so these parents must be terrible So I'm just going to take it. Take them. Take the children. Yes. Basically, the birth parents lost their parental rights to these children. And then this agency, with the help of several states, adopted those children out to white families. But these children weren't being abused. This is not like this is they were not in circumstances where in in our culture, CPS would have taken them away. The majority of them, no. I mean, um, were some of them in bad family situations? Sure. Probably. Okay. But the majority of them, no. They had loving families who were dealing with outside influences, like poverty. Right. Like a lack of social services. But rather than fix those things, we'll just take the children. Because the children are where the value is the only thing worth caring about They're a commodity, right? There are white families that are looking to adopt children. (sighs) Here are some children in bad situations. Problem solved. So in Gilead, when they take Alfred's daughter and they give her to a quote unquote better family. Yeah. Definitely it's happened before. Absolutely it's happened before in our country. The real question is, is it going to happen again? <sighs> so I want to talk to you about the legacy of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, obviously, the TV show, the Hulu show There's a book called The Power by Naomi Alderman. Are you familiar with that book? I've never heard of this. Okay. So in that book, women have basically like the power, like electricity in their bodies that they can kind of shoot out of their hands. Like X-Men? No. (laughs) Sure. If that helps you understand it. But women have the power. And so the book explores what would happen in a society and how... It's like the opposite it is the opposite, but it's the same social commentary because everything in the society is based on men having the power. Uh, so we're flipping it. Bef- and then so then women physically get this power. And so it's- And a the men by... are excited and happy to let us have our turn. Yeah. And, and Margaret Atwood- Yeah, sure. That's definitely what happened. <laughs> Margaret Atwood uh, was an early, I think an early reader of the book. and So when I bought it, there was a big like quote of praise from Margaret Atwood on the cover of this book. So people call it Atwood endorsed, I guess. But me personally, I see ideas from this book in The Hunger Games. Yeah. um, In episodes of Black Mirror. Sure. You watch Black Mirror? No. You have got to watch Black Mirror. I know you have Netflix. Yes. You have got to watch Black Mirror. Okay. I feel personally attacked. You should. We are swimming in dystopian young adult literature. Yes. And a lot of them have female protagonists and a lot of them are dealing with social commentary in these same veins. Uh I'm not going to say all of them are direct descendants of the Handmaid's Tale, but I think this it opened the door. I do think so. And obviously, if you watch the news, you see that people are wearing a Handmaid's outfit, dress, uniform, costume, uniform maybe. To political protests, you know, when legislation having to do specifically with women uh, or when, you know, proceedings have to do with women or sexual assault or abortion, reproductive rights, sometimes when they discuss the ERA, all those kinds of – anytime when people really want to draw attention to the way women are still being systematically oppressed or commodified, they – have these outfits and wear them to political protest. They're they're very dramatic, right? They're bright red and the women are with the wings. And there is no question, right, of what you're saying. You're saying what's happening here is oppressive to women. It's a very stark protest. And I've never, I don't know what Margaret Atwood thinks about that, but... I mean, part of it probably is... (laughs) I'm not gonna say proud, but like, hey, my work is resonating with people. Right, thirty years later. Sure, but also, I wish it weren't. <laughs> aren't we done with this? I yet? wish people read my book and were like, "What? No, women—they're people. This would—we ne- could never do this to women." Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, can I just have a PSA right here? Yes. When you're selecting your Halloween costume this year, yes, please don't pick sexy handmade. Is that a thing? It's a thing. No, 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 no. And I feel like if you pick that, you haven't read the book and like that's the complete opposite message of the book i mean so part of me don't do it so part of me is gonna say if you like it and it's meaningful to you yeah i'm mean, like i get it but also you're kind of missing the main theme of the book let's say consider the impact of your costume on other people because like right it's not a sexy theme yeah it's not, it's not it's a very serious very just my two cents yeah i feel free to disagree with me i do think it's me. too serious to deal with in a lighthearted way we're not there yet i agree and also i think it's just for the it's just too possible for me to think it's funny yeah this is a real bummer of an episode. <laughs> But I do want to let you know if you're thinking about a Halloween costume that's a sexy something else, please feel free to to buy it and wear it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not against sexy costume. No, I know, I'm but against. But I just want to say, this people, people brag on that all the time. I, if you want to be a sexy bunny, sexy nurse, whatever, do it. If you like it, it's your body. Just think it through. But yeah, definitely consider, you know, what you're saying to other people when you yeah. when you do that. But yeah, sexy nurse, go for it. French maid, do it. I don't think that's offensive to French people. I don't think so. So go for it. <laughs> I didn't think this is where we we're going to end up, but <laughs> offending the French. This is where we got to. This is where we got. What's next in your lady life, Missy? So next in my lady life is that I am leaving the country. What? Why are you always going places? Because it's summer <sighs> and I'm an educator and that's what we do. Where are you going? Mexico. Entire family. Parents. Siblings. Children? Children. That's yeah, not a vacation. Nieces no everybody's going i don't know what it is but it's not a vacation in-laws everyone's going what's next in your lady life allegra uh well hopefully i'll be unpacked done (laughs) that's not gonna happen sorry unpacked no okay fine six months from now you'll be saying i feel i'll be unpacked next week we actually went to the dump recently to get rid of things uh okay it's pretty fun you i cannot recommend it highly enough (laughs) really it is extremely fun because okay. you dump stuff out of your car, and then somebody scoops it up with a bulldozer, they throw it on a pile, and then somebody else is just smashing it with a different giant machine. Cool. Also, I would love to have that job for a day. Like the just, smashing things. Yeah, just have a big, large machine, and then just use it to smash things. Don't you think that would be... I think they could start a program. I don't think they'd have to pay people to do that. Just sign up for a shift. And there's also something where I live called The Break Room. Yes, I've seen this. And you can, they just give you like an apron and some goggles and then you, and a hammer, and then you can just go in and break stuff. Yes. It's like a team building. The break room by my house has something called a throwing room. I've seen a YouTube fail of that where a lady threw an axe and it bounced off and it came back. Well, I think you like throw dishes. Oh, okay. Not an axe. Yeah. This lady was throwing an axe. No one should, no one without a lot of axe experience should (laughs) throw an axe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Professor Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and in Gilead, I would be an Akata wife. Don't say that with such delight in your voice. Like, oh, I'm smug. Uh, and I'm Allegra. What did we decide I'd be? And you would be a... Uh, you would be a handmaid. I'd be an of somebody. An of somebody. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, Would you'd like to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at professors, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, professors at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend or a Martha. And remember... Don't let the bastards get you down. I'm not saying it in Latin.